Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. One of the biggest threats to Joe Biden's reelection is a viable third-party candidate. In fact, Democratic strategist Doug Sosnick has gone so far as to state that Trump can't win without a third-party candidate dividing the anti-Trump vote. It wouldn't take much for a third party to have a big impact. In 2020, the election was decided by fewer than 40,000 votes in three swing states. But in 2024, third-party fever seems to be on the rise. Already, Cornell West, RFK Jr., and Jill Stein are running. Then there's the quixotic movement known as No Labels, which has cited a stream of polling data arguing that a large majority of Americans are crying out for an alternative to Trump and Biden. The man producing those polls is Mark Penn, best known for two things, his devotion to centrist politics and his longtime role as the top pollster and strategist for Bill and Hillary Clinton. Penn's wife, Nancy Jacobson, runs no labels, and Penn provides the data that she uses to support her project. Penn reports that 64% of voters say the country needs another choice if it's a Biden-Trump rematch, and that most voters would consider a moderate, independent candidate as an alternative to the current president and the former president. Not surprisingly, Mark and Nancy's work has infuriated Democrats, who are spending money to discredit them, sue no labels, thwart the group's voter registration efforts, and pressure its affiliates. So what does Mark Penn think about all of this? We're going to ask him. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Mark Penn ascended through politics as a close ally of the Clinton family, he held senior roles for Bill's 1996 re-election, as well as Hillary's 2008 campaign, and then had an epic falling out. Now, he runs a large marketing and communications firm called Stagwell, and he publishes the Harvard Caps Harris Poll, which he seems to be using to troll both Democrats and Republicans. He's been asking lots of questions that either Trump or Biden don't want to talk about, from how the public perceives Joe Biden's physical acuity poorly, to whether voters will care about a possible criminal conviction for Trump, it depends, to how strong of an appetite there actually is for a third-party challenger. Penn's work amounts to a strategic map for anyone who might want to dismantle Trump or Biden's candidacy. And conveniently, his wife Nancy just happens to have a third party that is searching for a nominee. To freaked-out Democrats, No Labels swears it will not use that platform to help elect Trump, though that looks like an empty promise to Biden allies watching the likes of Joe Manchin, Larry Hogan, and others flirting with the no-labels opportunity. I caught up with Penn this week while I was on the road in New Hampshire, and he was in Miami Beach. We talked about the GOP primary results, his controversial polls, his real relationship with no-labels, and why he thinks that Nikki Haley may still have a big role to play in this year's election. Mark, let's talk about third parties and some of the, the polling on third parties. 
because um, you have been very, very bullish on potent demand for a third party out there. And a lot of people um, disagree with you on this one, I think. But make, make the case, what have you learned in your polling recently about whether the electorate is screaming out for a, a third party option here? Well, I had a question that I did maybe, I don't know, a year and a half ago that I started, which is, is just a basic question like, okay, if it's Biden v. Trump, would you consider a moderate independent? Okay, now, I know that question, really, I did John Anderson's polling, if you remember him, and I technically- 1983 third party candidate. I did Ross Perot's uh, polling. Uh, Ross, polling. Ross Perot got nine. I, I, sorry, did his, I did his benchmark, to be accurate. I did his. So that's the first poll. I did his, his very his first poll because then he brought in. I was with somebody, Peter Uberoth, and we we used to have him with uh, my old partner Doug Schoen. We used to have the what we call the freelance billionaire wants to run for president poll, and lots of people would do it and we'd say thank you. It's not your time, etc. So we we did it, and this time it said, you know what, you could win, right? And and you know, uh, and if I look at it, there was a there was there was maybe 30, 35% that were really interested and, and could go for a third party. And in reality, he got up to 39% in June, right, before he pulled out and had this crazy thing about Bush's wedding, whatever. But yeah. uh, I, I look at the conditions today, and about 60% say they would consider a moderate independent. So, you know, there, there's certainly, to the extent, you know, two-thirds are unhappy with the economy, Half say their life is getting worse. Seventy um, percent say they don't like the the choice that they have. So, is there an opportunity? There's certainly historically, uh, certainly historically, there's an opportunity. Whether or not the right person comes up and does it, you know, I always say whether you're Democrat, Republican, or whatever, being president is a low probability profession. Even the person with the highest probability, except in the last week of the election, has a low probability of being in the office. So when people say it's a long shot, well, every presidential campaign is a long shot. Sure. Uh, wait, so this cycle, have you done any uh, any uh, billionaire uh, uh, presidential polls this cycle yet? Uh, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> people okay. don't realize that, that not I'm, even not, a, okay. I'm not active in the profession anymore other than I do. Yeah, but if someone came polls. to you and said, <laughs> okay. <laughs> So here's the thing I don't get about the third party thing. And I understand that there's a vague demand, but basically third parties, when they come along, they do, they attract attention because they are addressing an issue that the two major parties are ignoring. So with Ross Perot, it was deficit reduction was, was his big issue and some political reform stuff, why, why they called it the reform party. Um, and then usually, you know, the two parties kind of realize they, they've, uh, ignored something and they, they co-opt that issue and the third party kind of uh, dies. Richard Hofstetter had a great line about this. He said, third parties are like bees. Once they have stung, they die. Now that's getting ahead of us because I don't, that's getting ahead of ourselves because I don't really see what the sting is here. What is the issue that a third party could actually run on that um, Trump and Biden aren't addressing? Well, but the, the very issue of national unity and, and solving problems like this. We were talking about immigration and comprehensive immigration reform. Well, a comprehensive immigration reform has been favored by 65 or 70 percent of the population for the last 10 years. Okay, Most issues have 
uh, solutions that in the current polarized environment aren't getting implemented. So, so the kind of opening here would be, look, for, for, for a third party to come in and say, look, we're going to actually fix the problems because we're going to be divorced from the partisanship that Republicans and Democrats have just dug themselves so much you know, into it. Never forget that Lincoln was, in effect, a third party, one with 39%. Um, but I, look, I'm not pushing it. It's like, don't, you know, the, you ask me, the, do, is there questions, is this historically more of an opportunity than I've ever seen? Yes. Will somebody come along who has the the, the drive, the issues, and the right? I, I, I can't tell you that. Nobody's there right now. But it's the it's sort of a, a, a process argument and a um, a kumbaya. Let's bring let's bring everyone together and um, uh, but solving and get problems. Done. Let's fix immigration. <laughs> let's do something about education. Yeah. Let's do something about our budget and get back to a balanced budget. You know the number of problems here since the Bill Clinton days that are now routinely unresolved and are tearing the country apart is 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 a pretty long list. All right. So the, the, there's an entity uh, called No Labels that uh, seems to want to be the vessel for this third party movement. And uh, all of their presentations cite uh, your excellent uh, surveys. So tell us a little bit about uh, uh, No Labels um, and your involvement or, or non-involvement in that. Uh, well, I just very clear. My, my wife, Nancy Jacobson, founded No Labels in uh, when I was busy actually with the Hillary campaigns and she runs it and she makes the decisions uh, and I have no formal or informal role other than that I occasionally look at some polling or I, I you know any of the polls I do are kind of public and uh, and I support my wife and I, you know No Labels is doing what it's doing and she tries to make clear that she's just getting ballot access and and she's just creating an opportunity if somebody if somebody were to come along uh, and be the right person uh, or not. And uh, and uh, I, I assure and I and I can assure you she's she's not someone who who ever would even consider voting for Trump. So uh, I, somehow the Democrats don't 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 fully understand uh, understand that fact. But. Uh, but I, I have a very full-time job at the moment running a company that's got 12,000 people. Uh, if people don't quite realize that I, I left all this behind gladly, uh, uh, having, having spent about 30 years uh, in the trenches uh, so that I could actually do the commentary that, that is so enjoyable and uh, it's, not as, uh, it's not as risky. I, I got to push you on that a little bit because I think you're being a, li a little too, um, you, you know, you don't know anything about this effort. I, Larry Hogan in the fall was at this event at the Hay Adams in Washington, D.C., and he started to talk a, a little bit about the third party portion of his conversation. And he said, Mark, he said, Mark and Nancy came to talk to me about their big third party idea. So. I, I feel like you've got to take a little bit of responsibility if you have some of these candidates running out there use, citing uh, your name as I, being part of these conversations. I, I, I don't actually uh, – if I, I, I maybe spoke to him in my entire life once for 10 minutes. So I, I, I cannot I, – I, I, I didn't right. catch that. Right, but but, but uh, if you went back to the number of times I've – I've actually spoken to a lot. It, it is not more than 10 minutes and it's not more than once. 
Why are Democrats so mad? I spoke to him so about mad. them, I, yeah. I don't remember, but I can assure you that uh, my wife spoke to him for 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 numerous hours, and she really is running this effort. And, and I am off running a, a a company that I delight in, and occasionally doing polls and podcasts. All right, fair enough. Is it, who else? Um, who else do you think is on? Is on the list for for no no labels. Anyone whose uh, name is not out see, there. That's where you're gonna. You have think to Nikki? Ask, you, you're gonna have to ask Nancy Jacobson because people that are gonna play. Well, <laughs> first they say, well, they have no chance. Then they say, well, well, you know, who's listening? Well, maybe that person would really have a chance. I, I don't know whether there's going to be a person who emerges. Who would have thought Ross Perot? Who would have thought? Look, the very first poll I did. I don't think anyone would thought Ross Perot. You're right about that. Right. I mean, the very first poll I did. Uh, in 1976, I, I, I came to my partner and said, we have to stop the poll. He says, uh, he says why? I said, you left off one of the presidential candidates. Uh, he, sa- he says, which one? I said, well, we left off Jimmy Carter. He says, forget about it. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I don't yeah. know if she's – you're going to have to get her on a podcast. If she'll All do right, it, fair. That's fair. Or, or get her and see where she's driving it because she really is, I guarantee you, 100% driving this thing. And and uh, and working well, with hundreds and hundreds of people on a, a very ambitious, but but very sensible project, and I think that that people have to realize that it is, it is that she is a very uh, sensible and strategic person uh, who who just, understands just go, what what understands where she thinks the country should not go. No fair. I mean, a lot of Democrats, as you know, are very mad at you guys about this. Uh, and like I said, I always say, you know, what they should have done is just uh, have a stake with her and what a mistake they've made and how much time they have wasted uh, uh, barking up the wrong tree. What do you mean? By, what do you mean? Uh, I think they, I think that, again, she's approached this thing uh, in a very sensible way and she has no intention whatsoever of being a spoiler in any concept, in any concept, and so they, I think that that's a very important value to her, and I think they've they've wasted a lot of, a lot of effort not just uh, uh, sitting down with her and understanding that. Do you think the White House is behind some of these efforts to, by donors to sue no labels and uh, thwart voter registration and pressure the affiliates? Uh, I have no idea. Again, I'm or in other words, is that what you're talking about when you say they should have, you know, sat down with her? That that kind of no, stuff. No, I've said, look, a lot of these groups and things that are that are wasting time, I, I think should just have sat down with her and kind of and and I think understood that uh, that she has no interest in in running a spoiler effort. And the final thing on this, I think, what would you think Nikki Haley would fit the profile of what what No Labels is trying to do? Um, given what we given our discussion earlier, I think to, to reframe your question, you know, is Nikki Haley someone who's gonna? I, I just don't think she is going to run an independent uh, candidacy for 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 president. I don't I don't think that's a likely scenario on her part. I think it's more likely that she'll be Trump's VP pick than that she'll break off and uh, and be an independent vice president. I I, I go back. There's probably you know, a lot of people who might, you know, look, somebody who's really going to be an independent has to draw equally from both and, and has to really be able to catch right. the imagination of the country. And I don't know, you're just going to have to wait and see if somebody like that, that emerges. But I don't think it's I don't think it's going to be Nikki Haley.
Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. We're recording on the Wednesday after the New Hampshire primary. Let's dig into the, the, the data. And I'm very curious to hear what your analysis of both sides is. And let's start with uh, Haley and Trump. What did we learn Tuesday night about the Republican race? Well, uh, look, I think I think Haley had a credible candidacy, uh, really drawing from the independent voters. And we knew that the kind of the, the real feature of the primary was that there wasn't going to be much of a contest on the Democratic side. And so there'd be a healthy population of independent voters that would give her a chance. But we really learned that Donald Trump, even in New Hampshire, has a commanding hold on the Republican base. Uh, and, you know, getting 70, 75 percent of registered Republicans in New Hampshire is a pretty commanding hold uh, on that base. Now, most people don't realize that there are 23 states uh, that take independent voters in the Republican primary, which is why the most conservative candidate actually typically doesn't win. But Donald Trump now is the conservative candidate of the Republican base. Nikki Haley is the independent candidate drawing primarily from what would be general election swing voters or softer Republicans, and there were not enough of them to put her over the top in New Hampshire. Right. I've seen you point out that um, to remind people that somewhat conservatives, that is the that's the sort of sweet spot in the GOP primary. And you've noted that Mitt Romney and John McCain, you know, who were not the, the furthest right candidates, uh, have won. That was your analysis before New Hampshire. You th basically, what you're saying is New Hampshire shows that she's just too far uh, to the left. And if, if you're only winning 25 percent of Republicans, it, is it is the is the data that you looked at Tuesday night mean that she's got no path, even in those 23 or, or 22 or 23 remaining states? Well, you, you always have a path if you change voters' minds. <laughs> but what this says, if she can't get more than 25 percent of the Republican base, practically speaking, even if she runs the table, she's going to lose and she'll probably get really murdered in the caucuses. Where, 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 you know, the, <clears throat> where they'll, she'll just walk away with all the delegates. So, yeah. so I think that, that, that structurally right now, unless she has some kind of game changer, she's, she's, gonna, she's likely to lose. Now, does that mean you should get out of the race? Uh, you know, you got into the 40s, you know, the race consolidated kind of quickly. He does have a strong base. Almost anything can happen in politics. Why not run it out to at least Super Tuesday, right, and, and see what happens? With Donald Trump, you never know. As I always say, it's Trump against Trump. And so right now, Trump is actually a much better Trump than I've ever seen. I was, I was remarking that yesterday he actually shared the podium with other people who had previously opposed him. Yeah. Okay, that was I, I, not the old Donald Trump, right? 
Yeah, but do you? I I agree, and I've I've heard you say this, but and I think I agree with you in a couple of cases. That the the victory speech in Iowa, the town hall with Fox in Iowa, I believe. But I did not see that Trump last night, despite giving the mic to Vivek Ramaswamy to just torch Nikki Haley a little bit. <laughs> to me, it was it was if if and Biden people I think agree with this. If you were watching that, it was an example of he's still Trump. If you tick him off, if you do something, his entire political strategy goes out the window and he just he he talks about Nikki Haley the whole time and sort of ignore instead of ignoring her. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that this is the obvious strategy after he wins such a commanding uh, victory. Talk about Biden in the general election. Uh, yes, that's right. There was new Trump for like three quarters of it. And then kind of old Trump kind of came out, you know, in the end. We used to talk about Saturday night Clinton and Sunday Clinton, right? And so yes. it's clearly like, and so, so yeah, I don't think old Trump is buried, but he's, he's contained a lot more generally, which is why he's doing better, frankly, than he ever has, right? I mean, the scene of him consolidating all of his opponents was remarkable. In 2016, yeah. the only people he had were his family. There was literally yeah. nobody who would stand on a podium with the guy prior. And now he's got 91 indictments and everybody is standing with him. It's really, it's really incredible in that sense. But <clears throat> look, I thought Nikki Haley's, uh, you know, presence was strong, but her message was really weak. You know, mm. her, her message was just like, you know what? Uh, Trump's a loser and I'll, I'll take you to win. And that's not an uplifting message. She had a moment there that I thought she could have capitalized on a vision for the country, right, that she would represent. And instead, she actually, I thought, failed to take that moment. I mean, she timed it well. She got out there early when people were watching. And, and I thought she, like I said, her personal presentation, good, but her message, you know, flat. Let's talk about Biden. What did we learn, if anything, from the results? Well, as I keep saying, Biden is the nominee. <laughs> the Democratic Party is more uh, coalesced around Biden than the Republican Party is coalesced around Trump, right? There, there's no opponent, really. Uh, there, there's, and, and, and if I ask the voters, if I look at the percentages who support Biden as the nominee, Biden has the support of, of Democrats. Uh, and he has consolidated that, you know, both both practically and I think politically and even in the polls. And of course, there are doubts about him. Of course, he's, you know, he's got an age issue. And of course, he doesn't have the best, you know, job ratings. And, you know, but still, you know, Democrats are not saying I want an alternative. Right. They are actually lining up behind Biden. And I think the fact that they did that last minute write in campaign you know, it was effective. And, and it forestalled what could have been really embarrassing uh, if they said, well, we didn't participate and Dean Phillips got a whole bunch of votes. And, and I think it was a smart move in the end. And it, it underscored that even as a write-in, he's, he's a winner with Democrats. Well, that's interesting. Just to dwell on that for a second, that's, I don't think that's the conventional wisdom that Biden has a firmer grasp over the Democratic Party than Trump has over the Republican Party. You hear people quite often make the opposite case. You're saying that's not true. Yeah, no, I hear people make this. And then I'm always wondering why all the Republicans all the time were like picking on Biden and trying to, they're, they're trying to like make it true that Democrats should get rid of him. Okay. 
Democrats are not getting rid of him. And I don't know that the Republican, I don't know why the Republicans want Democrats to get rid of him. It, none of it makes any sense to me. Right. Yeah. And, and all I can tell you is that if I ran a primary question, he would get a higher percentage vote in the primary generally than Trump was getting. Maybe that's different now. And it, practically, he doesn't have an opponent. And then the, then they have this theory going around that like, oh, yeah, but when we get to the convention, they're going to put somebody else in. All the delegates are going to be Biden selected delegates. <laughs> right. They're not I, going anywhere. I am shocked at how many people, smart Democrats, too, who still believe that and still uh, there's two versions of this. One is like a lot of well-connected, smart Democrats who say, don't worry, Biden's not going to be the nominee. <laughs> still think that. And then there are people who just aren't paying attention and they're like, Biden's not going to be the nominee, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> but um, I think I think we could all agree he's going to be the nominee. Um, let me ask you this. There was something interesting in the, in the exit polls. I don't know how much stock we should put in them uh, uh, yet until they're um, – I know that they do some – waiting against the final results. And so I don't know how good they are from last night. But the ones that came out late last night, the latest round, it showed like 10% on the Democratic side said they won't vote for Biden no matter what, if he's the nominee. But then it was something like, I don't have the number in front of me, but it was in the 30s. It was 31. That percentage, 31. Okay. What do you make of that? Well, again, I, I think that the Trump has a real problem here, which it's not somehow it's not as reflected in the overall horse races, because even in my getting in the latest Harvard Caps Harris poll, I had Trump by like seven, but of course he's only at like forty-seven, so he's not getting above a majority. You had Trump at forty-seven in the in the head-to-head -head with Biden. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, but he's not getting you know fifty or anything like that. So, um, but but Trump appears to me has a problem, which is the Nikki Haley voters. <laughs> Right. The Nikki Haley voters, a large percentage of them are are they are never Trump. And will they in the end cave back to Trump or does Trump have a way of consolidating them? It seems to me that Trump almost has to pick her as vice president. He really has no choice. Huh. Right. Because she's going to be sitting there. Give her 25 percent of the delegates. Right. And. And, and as a practical matter, she has all of the votes he needs to win. Nobody else will have put those votes or that coalition together. On the Democratic side, that's just not really the case. They're all going to be Biden uh, delegates. You know, he'll he'll just you know he'll give a speech at the convention. There there there's not going to be any kind of real split that way. There, it seems to me that Democrats held together despite Biden's ratings in the midterms, and they see, you know, and they're relatively holding together. Only 10% won't vote for Biden, but 30% of, of these other voters on the other side won't vote for Trump. Seems like Trump has a bigger problem than Biden does in that respect. That's really interesting. I mean, that would be a, a case for, for Nikki Haley to stay in a little bit longer and actually rack up some delegates if, if she can and prove if she can hit f into the 40s um, in some of these other independent heavy states? Uh, if she is willing to be Trump's vice president. If she doesn't want to be Trump's vice president and she just want a president or drop, then, you know, she should, she should drop. But if she wants to forge a coalition that might be useful in the future and at the end of the day, she's willing to accept that, you know, which Trump will have to go kicking and screaming. But Trump has no choice. He could do her or he could do Tim Scott Anybody else is not going to really, I think, even be remotely helpful. Well, 
I was just going to say, what, what about Tim Scott? And like the Haley voter doesn't strike me as an enthusiastic, yes, Nikki Haley voter. It's just a placeholder for not being Trump. So you could sort of swap out Haley with, you, you say only, Scott's the only person you can think of that would have, that would bring that coalition together? Might conceivably, but I think that she'll have more sway with, with the suburban women, right? Who, yeah. you know, and, and those suburban women classically vote a lot more Republican than people realize. Uh, but, but in the, in the, you know, in the Trump case, you know, they're, 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 they're really queasy about him. And, and she, she does, she, she would, I mean, the reason why she would be such a great general election candidate for the Republicans is, is essentially just that she would, I think, get that women's Republican vote in the suburbs overwhelmingly. And that would be the end of the election. I want to talk a little bit about Trump and his, his weaknesses and strengths this time. And I wonder if you have thoughts about what he did right in 2016, what he did wrong in 2020, or the differences between those campaigns and that he might learn from in 2024. Not yeah. asking you to give him strategic advice, but I'm just sort of to analyze that. No, I thought it was night and day. I thought 2016, uh, he staked out a number of clear issues, immigration, trade, crime to some extent. Uh, he flipped democratic issues around, right? Because those are issues that were mostly democratic issues. And he took working class constituencies as a result of flipping those issues. And even though the, the two of them hurled insults at each other all day long, I think those issues that he staked out really determined the race. In 2020, he didn't have a campaign. He had no new issues, no new agenda, he was flailing all over the place. I think it was a terrible campaign. I think he was lucky to get as many votes as he got in, in 2020. His debate performances were, were kind of bizarre. Yeah. You know, so I thought, you know, what he had going for him was, was, you know, he had a good economy for a couple of years. And that was probably, but I thought it was a terrible campaign. And, and I think he, you know, what he's doing so far has uh, surprised me. He's got higher numbers than he had before. He's got a 48% favorable. He's got a better organization, it seems to me, than he had before. He's a lot more formidable here. In 2020, I would have been really surprised if he won that his campaign was so bad. And, and let me just say the other thing. When I did a re-election, I spent most of the time planning out with the president the agenda for the future because... Voters look at it and they want to know what's in it for them in the next four years. And neither of these two candidates really seem to so far be rolling out much in the way of what they're going to do in the next four years. Yeah. How would you assess? We had Axelrod on the podcast recently and, and heard his whole critique um, of, the, of the Biden operation. What's your critique of what they've done so far in terms of general election strategy? Well, I mean, I, I, I was very unhappy with what they did during the summer. Because that summer, it's really a good time to put a fresh face on what you're doing, get around the country, you know, stake out some issues. And instead, he was on the beach, kind of half clothed the entire time. I thought the summer was a disaster, right? And by the time everybody got back in Labor Day, and that his numbers really started to tank, and people understood because the summer was wasted. I think now their strategy is, look, we're losing the top issues, so we're going to draw the line with Trump, and we're going to make the campaign about Trump and not us, and we're going to we're going to 
we're going to say, look, do you want Trump or do you want, you know, four more years of reasonable democratic rule and, and make that the choice? And I don't think that's a bad strategic choice. I mean, I'd always like to see more issues, more agenda, more clarity. I think politics in general is just too negative. But as a strategy now, hey, it, it worked twice. They're hitting that strategy hard. And I do think they, they do have to deal with the age issue. They do have to deal with. How do they deal with the age issue? What's, I've, not, I've yet to hear any, um, any real brilliant way to make him seem younger. Well, you can't make him seem younger, but you, you, you know, you got to find a format that works for him that is comfortable. Like, like we found the town hall format for Hillary was like, that's where she was able to shine. She wasn't the best stump speech speaker. She wasn't the best solo speech deliver, but she was great in an interactive town hall setting. So you've got to work with a, with a candidate and find what is that setting with people that really kind of works. I think they've got to look for that because, you know, he, you know, he is a highly personable guy, really. I mean, that was really one of his core attributes. You know, people want to want to think that, look, he's he may be old, but he's a decent guy at the end of the day who's going to make, you know, you know, good decisions for the country. And I think they can get there with that. I guess you're saying that being on the beach in his bathing suit is not that setting you're, you're talking about. Uh, that, that, that is not something we would have allowed, no. <laughs> uh, on Trump, it's interesting that you are, you think his campaign is a lot better and it's definitely, you know, from a reporter's perspective, we all notice that it is, um, it is more traditional, it's more professional in terms of how they do events, the upper, you know, the, the sort of advisors around Trump. It's definitely uh, m- much different than 2016. And 2020, probably right now because it's a smaller group. What what we didn't talk about are the indictments. And I know you've dug into that and come up with some surprising conclusions about the the indictments. And I wonder if you could just sort of lay out the um, real political risks that uh, you found there. Yeah, no, I was thinking about how to formulate questions that would that would that would show it. And so what I said, well, suppose he's convicted in the, in the document case, who would you vote for, right? And so what I found out is they don't care about the documents. <laughs> they, they think, right? And so I said, well, okay, what if he's convicted in Georgia? Hmm, they cared somewhat about that. And then I said, well, what if he's convicted in the January 6th case of having, you know, helped foment the, the riot at the at January 6th? Then Biden won. So it, hmm. it really said to me that, okay, Jack Smith and the case that Jack Smith wants to prosecute, that's the dangerous case. Now, that presupposes that he connects Trump to the actual violence, that if you do that and you do that legally and a jury convicts him, uh, at that point, Biden won by, he didn't win overwhelmingly, he won by four, okay? <laughs> but but it, it did move the race 10 points, basically, right? And and the document case was like, that, that was just considered like, like they, they, he could have burned those. Dollars. It doesn't really. They don't care about that. That's interesting. They don't care that, that because they figure what that presidents just can take their documents. I mean, classified. Well, yeah, because classified doc. They're, they're, he wasn't selling. You know, he wasn't selling out the country. He was. He was. You know, looking through his own documents. That they, they, this this whole doc, classified document stuff and trying to catch. You know, vice presidents and presidents and secretary of states with aha gotcha. The, the people just see that as as lawfare. They, they don't really see that as a serious breach. 
fomenting a riot, well, that's a serious, you know, breach of public trust. That's different if, if he's convicted of yeah. that. I guess on the flip side, if they do actually have a trial before Election Day, which is obviously very much up in the air, if he's um, not convicted, if a jury finds him not guilty, that's going to be a huge boost. And uh, he will have, yeah. uh, I mean, in other words, better than having not been indicted uh, at all, perhaps. Uh, that's some high stakes politics. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, ab absolutely. I don't think there's any question if he was actually acquitted by a jury on that uh, close to the election, uh, that would give him a, a tremendous boost. Yeah. I mean, it would just I didn't poll on that technically. I only really that's a hard thing to I mean, I was, <laughs> I mean, is that I, I suppose that's a hard thing to poll on because that's such a the circumstances are so are, are unique and it's hard for voters. I imagine to answer a question, a theoretical question like that. Uh, it, it is, but I thought the insights are real. You know, the insights I got out of the series of questions, and you can find them at harvardharrispoll.com, you know, along with every other question and every other text. Let's talk about one one thing um, in your last poll uh, related uh, to Biden, and that is immigration has emerged as a top tier issue. Um, I think I heard you say recently that uh, it's the first time that you can remember uh, in, in your polling um, it uh, rising to this level. Um, give us a sense of how important immigration is right now, according to the surveys you've done. So, so we ask voters, name your top three issues, and then we we you know we sort it out. And uh, for the very first time, immigration in this month's. Harvard Caps Harris poll came up as the number one issue in the country. Now, um, that just has never been the case. I, I cannot recall any time in, I'll, I'll go back, you know, okay, there was once a time when crime was the most important issue, maybe in the 80s, early 90s, right? Never a yeah. time that I can recall where immigration was number one displacing the economy. And, 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 and you watch this over the last couple of years, just build and build and build. And I always had an interesting question, like how many people do you think are coming across the border every month? And most people would say like 10,000. <laughs> so, so the truth is the more they learned the facts that it was hundreds of thousands, right? The more yeah. this was going to explode as an issue if left unaddressed. And look, the best thing going for Trump at the moment is that the number one issue is immigration, which he really kind of you know put a stake in the ground you know, on and, and was kind of right at the heart of his candidacies. Do you think, what, what's the implications for Biden and his current negotiations with Congress um, in terms of the politics of the deal he's trying to strike? Well, the politics are make a deal, <laughs> uh, pretend that you're dragged kicking and screaming, uh, and do your best to take the issue off the table because the, the, the better, what, what we used to do was try to neutralize all of the, you try to, you try to move your issues forward, climate change, rach, you know, racially, racial equality, abortion, right? And, and you move those forward and then you're playing defense on the Republican issues and you have to take them off the table, right? And so you've got- This was the strategy, this was the 96 reelection strategy essentially for Bill Clinton. Well, yes, but I would say that I've, I've deployed that strategy probably 20 times back in the day. It was the same strategy I had with, say, Tony Blair, right? We had to take, yeah. you know, the conservatives had immigration. We had to take it off the table. Once we got it off the table, then we'd win on all the other issues. 
So Biden has to, I don't think he can take immigration off the table. I think he, he waited too long for that, but he's got to kind of neutralize it in some way because its intensity, once it got to the major cities and once the major, the mayor started to complain and once taxpayers realized that there was enormous bill that would go to citizens other than those who just live in Texas, uh, this, this thing exploded beyond kind of, and once people realized the numbers too, which they think grossly under underestimated but it does it, do, it certainly does have uh um it echoes of welfare reform in 1996 this strategy uh well it does echo that that if you you know you've got to advance yours take theirs off the table but just as a practical matter he's running for re-election he he can't have a his lowest rating maybe in my poll, like 35%, his lowest rating is on immigration. It's the number one issue. That That is, you know, that's, you know, I won't call yeah. it fatal, but let's call that super difficult. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and is there any sense in the immigration polling that some of the uh, concern is from the left and it's from, you know, not the restrictionist right, but some but people who want uh, 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 more uh, open border or comprehensive immigration reform or, you know, uh, you know, from, from the left? Uh, I would say that the concern of immigration is not coming from the left, uh, <laughs> that the people who, you know, who take, say that as an issue overwhelmingly vote Republican. But I would say that, that, that it would be a misreading to say that, that Americans are not sympathetic to people who are here, regardless of how they got here. Uh, if they're, if they're, Law abiding, and and so they've always they've always overwhelmingly favored you know a path for DACA recipients. You know they're they're remember you know this issue has cried out for comprehensive immigration reform or bipartisan compromise for like a decade, right? And and the yeah. fact it didn't happen now everything is look it's tilted it over to security, but you know this this is still an opportunity for Democrats to get something out of it. Right. Mark, thank you very much for, for a lively conversation. Learned a lot. And we will uh, talk to you soon. Thank you. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Thank you to Ben Chihulian and Miami Podcast Studios for field production in Miami Beach this week. I wish I had been there. Tell us what you think about the show or who you'd like to hear on Deep Dive. You can email me at rlizza at politico.com. And please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>